Let us now turn for our scripture reading to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23. And we'll begin reading at verse 26, and we'll continue through verse 49. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross, that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren, wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a short time ago we uh, joined together singing those words, Thou art the King of mercy and of grace, uh, reigning omnipotent in every place. The lines from that uh, beautiful uh, hymn concerning our Savior Jesus Christ. And when you uh, consider it, there's something remarkable about those lines because it combines mercy and grace with omnipotent power. And uh, mercy and grace uh, are seldom combined even with a very limited power in the hands of sinful people. And uh, 
when people come to positions of influence and control, uh, quite characteristically, they become proud. Quite characteristically, they uh, do not look after the real concerns of uh, of little people, of ordinary folk. And uh, that is quite characteristic of the rulers of this world. But Jesus Christ is always the same in the heights of glory or in the depth of his humiliation. Uh, mercy and grace go before his face. Mercy and grace shine out from him. Now today on this special occasion, we, we behold our king. We behold our king as revealed in scripture and particularly this morning as crucified. We behold him in the time of his great suffering, being nailed to a cross. And children, that meant he was nailed to a cross in order to die a very slow and agonizing death. And in that very agony, even as he is about to enter uh, those three final hours of of darkness and anguish, even as he is about to enter that crucible of suffering and feel the forsakenness and abandonment of God. We see him in the majesty of saving mercy. We see him showing grace uh, to sinners. We know that the gospel proclaims the cross of Jesus Christ as the very centerpiece of his saving work. But when we consider the record of Christ's suffering also upon the cross, we see that the gospel even there is proclaimed by himself, by words that he spoke, and even even by his silence on other occasions. The gospel is proclaimed by him even as he carries out uh, the great work of redemption for us. The grace of the king is displayed at his crucifixion. That's our theme from our from our text uh, this morning. I'm not covering everything that we read, but especially focusing on verses uh, 33 through 43, and there is enough material even within these verses for many sermons, and so we, we have to cover uh, uh, more ground than might uh, characteristically be done on a sermon, but there are a number of things that we want to consider in connection with the display of our Savior's mercy and grace during his crucifixion. And uh, first of all, we want to consider Jesus' prayer. Uh, when his majesty is so dreadfully abused, I'm referring especially to verse 34, where we read, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Then Jesus said, that means immediately after verse 33, which says, when they came to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right hand and on the other. Jesus responds this way, immediately, right after they nailed him to the cross. Immediately following, or even during, we must say, the initial trauma of the excruciating pain of these nails driven through his hands and feet, pain in which his nerves must have just screamed out in agony. You'd think that he would be so overcome, so overwhelmed 
by the shock of that horrific violence committed against him that he could think of nothing, much less to consider others. What explains this prayer for forgiveness? Well, actually the explanation is found in the fact of his awareness of God. His awareness of the horrible evil that is being committed against him in relation to God. People dared to take God's beloved Son into their wicked hands and inflict such cruelty upon him. We might ask, what can restrain divine vengeance at such a moment? What can restrain divine wrath from breaking out upon these people, even as God is so provoked by such wickedness? If ever lightning might justly fall from heaven, there have been other occasions when fire fell from heaven in holy wrath and judgment against sinners. And we might think if ever there was a reason for lightning, for fire to fall from heaven in judgment against these perpetrators of such horrific evil, this would be the time. Jesus was fully aware of that. Jesus was fully aware of himself. Aware of the dignity, the proper dignity, the proper honor that rightfully belonged to him. And we, we know that our Lord's our sense of the holiness and the justice of God was, was infinitely acute. How can his father restrain his hand from immediately punishing such insolence against the prince of life? How can it be? How? Only through mediation. The suffering one, in his agony, his response is to come to the defense of his tormentors. And he says, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know who I am. You know, we, we hear this prayer of Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they, they do. And we probably imagine that as kind of a quiet, sedate prayer. I think it's probably better to hear it as a cry of intervention. As the Son of God is aware of the horrible sin committed in the sight of God. He says, Father, withhold your hand. Yes, they deserve immediate catastrophic judgment for the evil being committed at this very time and place. In the 17th century, there's this very interesting and moving account of uh, the execution of one of the Stuart kings, King Charles I. And uh, he was executed uh, after uh, a number of years of great turmoil in England. Conflict between Parliament and the king. King Charles was a tyrant. And he ruled with a kind of authority that disregarded, indeed, legitimate needs and rights of people. 
He didn't listen to the parliament. He dismissed them. They didn't even, weren't allowed to meet for many years. And eventually it came to the point of civil conflict, armed conflict. The royalists, King Charles and his army went to war against parliament. And there was a civil war, a lot of bloodshed. And eventually, uh, the parliament or the roundheads, as they were called, they, they defeated the king. They defeated his armies. And he was, uh, um, held as a captive. But even though during such conditions there were a lot of efforts to come to some compromise, to restore him with some agreed upon restraints and controls, he would have none of it. Basically, he uh, held to uh, a divine right to rule as he wished, basically. And eventually that led to his trial for treason and it led to his execution. And the details of that execution are recorded uh, quite quite accurately and specifically. And it's quite interesting that uh, in 1649 at this uh, event, the king was executed with uh, a kind of uh, display of, of decorum and, uh, and uh, dignity. And he himself exhibited remarkable uh, kingly grace, you might say, in terms of a kind of elegance and a kind of uh, dignity. And, and in a way, he showed a kind of personal graciousness. He exhorted his daughter uh, to forgive those who caused his death and to command his other children that, that they would do the same. He expressed forgiveness to those who took away his life. And that's that's quite remarkable. But Jesus is not just an example of a kind of personal graciousness here which itself would be remarkable. If he said to the soldiers and executioners, I forgive you. No, his prayer is not simply one of personal graciousness. His prayer is one of mediation. Father, forgive them. They have no idea how they offend you. It's as if the Lord Jesus is saying, remember, Father, that it is I who willingly took all this upon me and forgive them for the sake of actually what I am doing. Brothers and sisters, here really is insight into His grace toward you and I. There are probably some here who can recall uh, their pre-conversion life. They can recall what it, what it meant to live without faith in Jesus Christ, without the hope of the gospel, and with shame recall how they would take the blessed name of the Savior upon their lips as a curse word. Perhaps they did that for years. Perhaps they indulged in immorality and all kinds of sin without any regard for the honor of God, without any sense of the evil of their conduct. Perhaps they exhibited contempt and cruelty uh, towards others, even perhaps to family members, without any concern for them. And all the while, God in His great forbearance and patience allowed them to continue to live, to continue to dishonor God, provoking His wrath and judgment by their sin. Why? 
Well, because of the mediator. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's gracious purposes in Him to forgive you. Forgive you. So that you don't pay the penalty for your sins. And how much is that not true for each one of us? As we continually fall short of the glory of God. We must not think that our sins, because we are justified, are no longer sins, no longer offensive to God's holiness, no longer contrary to His law. No, they are. But God, for the sake of Christ, goes on pardoning our sins for the sake of that blood that was shed. Five bleeding wounds He bore received at Calvary. They wrought effectual prayer. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. It's through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have been forgiven. That the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanses us from all our sins as we continue to confess our sins and acknowledge that we live by God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ based upon what happened there on the cross. And this prayer of forgiveness gives us some insight into the necessity of this mediation of, of our Savior. Jesus' prayer, when, while, his majesty was so horribly abused. And then secondly, we consider Jesus' passivity when his majesty is derided. In verse 35, the people stood looking on, but even the rulers with him sneered, saying he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself. Here you have, again, Jews and Gentiles, those broad categories that distinguish the whole world combining together in their mockery of the Savior. And we notice that it's his kingship that's the main target for their contempt. When the Jews mockingly said, if he is the Christ, what are they doing? Well, they're ridiculing the very idea that Jesus is the promised son of David, that he is the chosen one of God in order to lead, in order to deliver, in order to save, in order to rule God's people. And the soldiers, the Gentiles, they mock him as a king, king of the Jews. And their mockery involves insult not only of the Savior, but of the whole Jewish people. It's like, yeah, this is the best that these contemptible people can come up with. Here's their king. And they heap mockery on him. And they offer him sour wine in his pathetic weakness and helplessness. But notice also that Jesus' ability to save is joined with this mockery at every point. The rulers with the people, and the soldiers, and even the thieves. I know only one is mentioned, but if you compare this with other accounts, you'll know that at the outset, 
Both of the thieves reviled the Lord Jesus. And characteristic of this mockery is that they cast doubt, they really cast contempt on his whole ministry. He saved others. Now, do you think that there is a real honest acknowledgement of the significance of that? It's sarcasm. They could hardly deny the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ for the past years had shown his power in saving people from leprosy, from blindness, from lameness, from demon possession. But they throw it all into contempt. He saved others right. He can't save himself. And this is a point that touched our Lord Jesus most personally and most deeply. This attack is not uh, only against his royalty, but it's against, you might say, his identity in the most profound way. It's an attack upon uh, his very name, Jesus. That name that truly describes him. And Jesus had no answer to it. Jesus is silent. You see, in order to answer it, in other words, in order to prove to them that he is able to save, he would have to deny his saviorhood. He is able to save indeed. Not according to their judgment, but he is able to save precisely because he is willing to suffer and to continue to suffer to the end. And he could save in no other way. You see, as they mocked his ability to save as king, he was showing his willingness to save as priest. He saved us by his passive obedience. He saved us as a lamb led to the slaughter. Again, to go back to a contrast with the execution of uh, of Charles I. The details uh, surrounding this whole event showed a kind of care to uh, to do it in a dignified and uh, a tidy kind of way, you might even say. The king enjoyed some wine, a little wine, but you can be sure it was pretty good quality wine and some bread before he was led out to the execution. And they didn't strip him of his clothes. He put aside a, a, a robe that he was wearing. He, he dressed up for the occasion. In fact, uh, it was reported that he had two shirts on. And the reason that was surmised was that it was a cold and chilly morning and he didn't want to show any fear by shivering. They didn't gamble for his clothes. Instead of uh, the, the language of Scripture hurled at him in contempt. That's what's happening around the cross. He saved others. Let him deliver him if he delights in him. Instead of an abuse of Scripture hurled at him while he suffered a prolonged execution. Well, Charles had a chaplain to read comforting passages from the Word of God as he was brought to the execution block. He tucked his long hair under a cap. 
offering a clean cut to the executioner before he knelt on that block, a block that was draped with black. He was given time to pray. He told his executioner when he stretches out his hands, that's the time. He bowed his head and prayed silently for a time. And he stretched out his hands and a sudden, quick, clean blow from an axe severed his head. And that was it. Yeah, gruesome, but rather quick, rather dignified, you might even say. And you contrast with the Lord, that with the Lord Jesus Christ, where his majesty was trampled, mocked, no respect, treated like the worst of criminals, subjected to an agonizing, prolonged death. But his majesty isn't obscured to us, is it? We behold our king. We behold his majesty in his passive suffering, in his submission to such shame as he hung naked, such indignity, such insult. And he endured it. He endured the cross, despising the shame. His majesty is not obscured. It wasn't even obscured to those around him at the cross. Thinking of one in particular. And that leads us to consider Jesus' promise. When his majesty is acknowledged, the spirit opened the eyes and reached the heart of one of those thieves. Now, our text doesn't, doesn't explain that, but there's no other explanation, is there? There's no other explanation for a change from uh, joining in with the mocking crowd and his mocking companion and then his humble prayer. His humble prayer that gives expression to repentance, a change of mind, a change of heart and expressed in that that prayer when he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Yes, he was gripped by a realization and a conviction and a kind of understanding that is eventually common uh, to every saved sinner. He was gripped by the fact that Jesus was innocent. He had done nothing wrong. But what's astounding at this time is that he was gripped by the fact that he was a king who's coming into his kingdom, his kingdom. And he prays for some consideration that the king would remember him when he enters his glory. And what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus... Uh, took him into his fellowship. Yes, he promised him heaven, paradise, and he promised it today. He promised it even before the perfection of his kingdom would appear, right? That only will take place when the Lord Jesus returns in glory. Then the perfection of his kingdom will also be manifested. But even now, he promises the very company of the king. The thief prayed, 
remember me. And Jesus replied, with me, with me. Yes, to be absent from the body for believers is to be present with the Lord. And Jesus assured this man that that would take place that very day. With gladness and rejoicing, they shall be brought. They shall enter the king's presence. That's from Psalm 45. That ultimately describes uh, that uh, great day in which the church will be presented as a bride without spot and blemish to her royal husband and savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who, who will be so admitted? Well, whoever, whoever receives this king as he's revealed in scripture, whoever receives him as the savior whose blood satisfies for our sin. All they, all, all such who receive him are received by him in grace immediately. And ultimately received to him in glory when he takes them into his very presence. Verse 8 says that the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breast and returned. And I was reminded of uh, something else that was recorded at the execution of Charles V, V or I. And actually, it's recorded by Philip Henry. And Philip Henry was the father of the commentator, Matthew Henry. And he was present. And he said, when the executioner held up the head of the king silently, he said, such a groan came over the people as I had never heard before, and I hope never to hear again. It wasn't a shout. Was it cheering? Was it anger? It was a groan that observers remarked as a horrible kind of response. And there's a sense in which that there were repercussions uh, to that event, and the groaning was heard for many, many years after that in terms of the fallout and the consequences of that. Even those who defended it, even those who thought it was the necessary thing to do, called it a necessary tragedy. And it eventually pro provoked a great reaction and uh, many people who were involved in it had a change of mind afterwards. But they couldn't undo it, right? However, they may have been filled with regret. Well, this crowd was profoundly moved at what had been done. And they couldn't undo it. But those who came to understand what it meant, they wouldn't want to undo it. Because they would learn that in God's purpose, in his wise and gracious plan, those wicked hands that laid hold of the Son fulfilled what God had intended and purposed to do in grace and love. And no doubt, they were for the rest of their lives humbled over the reality of, the, of their own sin. But that, that Friday was not Black Friday, Dark Friday, it's Good Friday. It's Good Friday because what, because of what our Lord and King has accomplished for us as the ultimate supreme 
demonstration of the love of God who sent him into the world to do that very thing. And he was obedient unto death. And now he's exalted. Yes. Not only uh, could this work not be undone, but in a way, uh, the finality of his death was undone within three days because the Lord Jesus emerged from the tomb victorious, having conquered sin and Satan. God forbid that I should boast, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, those are the words of the Apostle Paul, but they express what uh, Christians should recognize as a motto for their lives. Because our salvation all hinges, it all depends on what our Savior accomplished uh, so many years ago for us who place our trust in Him and who now worship Him as our God and King. Amen.